If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. This morning we are continuing in our series through the Gospel of Luke. This has been the longest series that we've done together as a church. We are on Sermon 72 this morning. We will probably end around Sermon 90 just a few weeks after Resurrection Sunday next April. Now throughout this series, the focus of all that we have sought to see and learn and apply has been about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the very beginning, Luke was focused on telling us who Jesus is. For the first nine chapters, he was focused on showing us Jesus to be the fulfillment of the promised Messiah, human and divine, the Savior for the world. But then around chapter 9, chapter 10, Luke shifted his emphasis to show us not just who Jesus is, but what it means to follow after Jesus in faith. He he turned his attention to show us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Even in recent weeks, the material that Luke has presented us with has been hard-hitting because Luke wants to make it clear that being a disciple of Jesus is no game, that there is a cost to following Him. There is a challenge to our sinful desires and lives, and Luke is presenting that front and center. So someone had, had made the comment that, boy, man, the sermons have been really, really hard the last couple of weeks. Well, that is not my intention because I find anything particularly objectionable in you or in me. It is simply the message that Luke is wanting to show us. And in fact, the intensity of that message, the intensity of the call of discipleship has increased from chapter 10 until what we have just been seeing because here Luke is shifting into the third and final section of his gospel. He has covered three years of Jesus' life in 19 and a half chapters of material. Now he's going to cover about a week's worth of Jesus' life over five and a half chapters. Think about the emphasis there. Why is that emphasis so important because what we're about to begin looking at today is the last week of Jesus' earthly life. It's what we call the Passion Week as Jesus enters Jerusalem, teaches, dies on a cross, and is raised back to life. It is arguably the most important week in the life of Jesus Christ. It is the most important week in the history of the world itself. You don't have Christianity apart from the truthfulness of this week and its events. That's why it's going to take us another 20 sermons to unpack uh, the next five chapters, getting to the end of Luke's gospel. We begin to unpack the most important seven days in the history of redemption this morning. So actually in your sermon notes, if you flip over to the back, what you see is a bit of a key to help you be oriented to what Luke is going to tell us, what the events of the last week of Jesus' life are like. And this morning, we start with that first Sunday and we'll even get into Monday morning. What we see about this Passion Week from what Luke tells us in these verses is that everything begins with a cult, a king, and a crowd. So let's look to see what he says beginning at verse 28. When Jesus had said these things, that is, when he has finished telling the parable of the ten minas that we saw last week about what his kingdom is going to be like and what the expectations are of his servants. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. 
when he drew near to Bethphage and to Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And as they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the disciples in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from our eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. May God bless the reading of his word. The glory of Christ's kingship is most fully seen after his death and resurrection. Yet throughout Luke's gospel, we've been given glimpses of that kingship, what he will be like as king, what his reign will be like. And here is no different. In fact, though they do not completely understand the implications of what they are saying, the people nonetheless rightly apply Psalm 118 to Jesus' arrival when they declare, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Isn't it interesting how similar that, that sounds to the song that the angels themselves sang at Jesus' birth? So now his disciples, his followers, and even the larger crowd are singing this declaration of praise to the Lord for the sending of Jesus the King. He is the King. This is the imagery that Jesus himself used just the day before, just last week in the sermon that we saw as he sought to say something about himself as king. And now his kingliness, his authority, his character as a sovereign is put on display for us. So once again, we are looking to understand what Jesus is like as king. And what we see in these verses should be there to both correct us and to encourage us. They should cause us to, to be corrected, convicted of our sin when we do not believe Jesus to be like this and we do not respond accordingly. And yet they should encourage us that Jesus has come seeking the salvation of souls and is a king worth following. Four things we see about Jesus this morning. First of all, we see his humble authority. We see the king's humble authority. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. 
untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, if you're just casually reading through this, you may be uh, tempted when you hit those verses to read that and think uh, something simple like, well, it's interesting that Jesus rode into Jerusalem considering he walked everywhere else. Or maybe you'll take it maybe another level and say, you know, actually there is an example to follow here in those who owned the donkey cult. When the Lord had need of it, they just let him take it and weren't worried about whether or not it would come back. We ought to also be willing to depart with our goods simply because the Lord has need of it. Or maybe still you wonder, who cares about all these details? What's the point? Well, quite frankly, the point is this. This is probably the most important donkey in history. In this one cult, we see evidence of God's faithfulness to His promises spanning thousands of years, assuring us that indeed Jesus is the promised King. He is the Messiah, and He is exactly as God had promised. Why a donkey? That's the first question we should ask, because we tend to think of horses as beasts of, uh, of, of, of burden, of conveyance, worthy of royalty. Jesus is pictured in Revelation as coming back riding a white horse, and yet here a donkey. Why? Well, in part because of its associations with David in 1 Kings. There, as he is about to die, he chooses Solomon to be his successor, and he tells his people to get his donkey, to take it out, and to put Solomon on it, and ride him back into town for his coronation. David has received a covenantal promise that forever a a king from the line of David will be on the throne. And in fact, one day, a very special king, a king whose kingdom will not end, the very son of God through the line of David will come and he will reign forever as the Messiah. And so just as David's first son to take the throne after him, Solomon comes in on a donkey. So now Jesus, David's perfect son who will reign forever, comes in on a donkey. More than that, More than that, we remember the the promise of Zechariah 9. There, Israel was told to rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Messiah isn't a king who has to prove his worth by reigning over his people with an iron hand, quite the opposite, toward his people, not his enemies, but toward his people, he comes with humility and righteousness to bring salvation. That is what we are to see as the fulfillment of promise from Zechariah in Jesus riding on this colt. Finally, notice that this is a donkey that's never been ridden before. Okay, now I want you to think about that for a minute. If you know the Old Testament, you'll remember passages like Numbers 2 and Deuteronomy 21 that talk about this principle of purity for, 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 and the necessity of purity for things that belong to the Lord. Uh, you don't give God your leftovers. You don't offer Him your rejects. You give God your best. And so it would have been appropriate to, to give a cult that had never before been ridden. Uh, I, I, as ceremonially, at least, a human sinner had not tainted this donkey in any way. But I think there's something more important than that going on in this passage. Some of you may not know the Old Testament, but you know animals. 
Some of you don't know animals, but you've watched enough Bonanza and Little House on the Prairie to know if you don't break an animal in before you put a person on there, it does not go well, right? Come on, somebody, give me something here. Okay, there we go. See, they are, they are listening. So, so, so here's the thing. Uh, that animal is going to resist. It's going to bunk. It's going to jump around. It, it has to be broken in. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, there's a, there's a theological point to that. It doesn't just like, well, that's the way things are. No, that's not the way things were meant to be. That's not what, how they will be in the age to come. But you read Genesis 9 this afternoon, and there is a fear of humanity that God puts into the animals. And so now they have to be broken. They have to be trained to accept people and not be afraid of them. But then think about animals in large groups of people. You ever notice why mounted police on the horses have those little uh, things to cover the horse's eyes? You can only see in the front because the crowds would spook the animal. It would bolt. It would run. Now think about this. Jesus is riding this colt that's never before been ridden. He's riding it through yelling joyous crowds of people throwing down coats and palm branches. If you know anything about animals on the surface, this looks like this is not going to go well. Jesus, you were supposed to be the wisest man who ever walked the earth. You know this is not a wise plan. But remember, he is a humble king with authority over all things, even the animals that he has created. Jesus doesn't need to break in this cult. Just the opposite. He is gentle in his authority, so he simply needs to heal the donkey of its fear, making it useful for him. With Jesus riding it, with Jesus in control, this beast becomes completely fearless against every instinct inside of its heart in the midst of this crowd. I'll just pause for a minute and think, if Jesus can do that for a mere donkey, how much more for us? How much more should we present ourselves for service before Christ? Trust in His humble authority to take care of us, to lead us, to make us fearless in the face of any circumstances. Well, we see Jesus' humble authority, but Luke also shows us his honored arrival. This is the second thing that we see here, the king's honored arrival. As we think about the reaction of the people as Jesus arrives, remember what's going on behind the scenes in the immediate context of this passage. Remember, this is the time of Passover. It is one of the most defining moments in the history of Israel and therefore has prominence in shaping her national identity. It marked God's final victory over Pharaoh and the beginning of Israel's exit from Egypt to the promised land. It marked them apart from everybody else in Egypt as a people who had faith in Yahweh, the one true God, and therefore were spared judgment that befell upon the firstborn of that lamb. And so they were required by law to keep this feast every year to go back, as it were, and remember their salvation again and again and again, to remember God's mercy, His saving grace towards them through the Passover, that they might have their minds and their hearts drawn back up to a God for another year of faithful living as His covenant people. This was an annual event, and it was a big deal. Consider that one year close to, to Jesus' day, a census was taken of all the lambs slain for the feast of the Passover. The number counted was 256,000 lambs. Now think about that. There had to be a minimum of 10 people per lamb. You did not slaughter a lamb for Passover unless 10 people at least were going to partake of that. So if the census estimate was correct, there were as many as 2,700,000 people just in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. 
That's a massive, massive event. All those Jews spread out from all over the land, coming together as the covenant people of God with unity to celebrate God's salvation. Their minds and their hearts would have been drawn up to the faithfulness of God and His covenant through Moses as well as the promises they made to them through the prophets. Luke told us at the beginning of the gospel that Jesus was born into this people who were now longing for the consolation of Israel. They were desperate for the Messiah to come. So when they brought this cult to Jesus, knowing the words of Zechariah, knowing the associations with the Davidic king, they threw their cloaks on that cult and set Jesus up on it. Why? Because they believe he is the king. They believe that he is the promised Messiah and they delight to honor him as that king, believing he is about to establish his kingdom. Remember what we saw just previous to this. Jesus very intentionally tells that parable to reframe the understanding of the disciples because he knows they're in Jerusalem and they know he's about to establish his kingdom, but they don't understand what that kingdom is really going to be like. Nevertheless, here they are ready, anticipating Jesus coming as the promised king. And it's not just the 12. Sometimes we talk about the disciples, we think, oh, it's just the 12. Remember at this point, Jesus had hundreds of people following him. And these people, as they're going down, begin to pull in more of the crowds so that as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now Luke is intentional in telling us once again that Jesus is entering Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Luke is not just a geography buff, okay? There is an intentionality in telling you this. The Mount of Olives has a significant place, significant part in the the coming of God's Messiah. Remember back in, in your mind's eye, go back in redemptive history several hundred years and you remember that, that Israel had so persistently sinned, had so unrepentantly sinned. God had been so grieved over hundreds of years of breaking the covenant after sending prophet after prophet after prophet of warning to them that he finally decides to bring about the covenant judgment that he had promised for their disobedience. It's not like he had a bad day. And just on a whim said, "Ah, I'm going to do this. No, he had told them back when they received the law, this will be the consequences if you do not obey me. These are the consequences if you do not put your trust in me. And they didn't obey him. They didn't put their trust in him. But he was patient. He was merciful. He sent warning after warning after warning. Hundreds of years he held back his wrath. And now he says, no more. No more. And so he allows... Israel's enemies to breach the borders, to come in even to Jerusalem itself, to lay siege to the country and carry them off into exile. And you'll remember the prophet Ezekiel is, is told that this is what is going to happen. And he has this vision of the glory of the Lord, that, that visible, glorious manifestation of God's presence that was normally in the Holy of Holies, hovering above the Ark of the Covenant. Ezekiel has this vision of the glory coming out of the temple and lifting up and departing from the people. And what does it do as it heads out of Jerusalem? It pauses over the Mount of Olives. And you get this impression as if God has has left, and yet he turns one last time to look at his people, thinking to himself, saying to himself, why could you not trust me? Why did you persist in going after the false gods, which you knew were not real gods? And then 
the glory departs back to heaven. Not long later, Ezekiel receives another promise. That just as the glory departed toward the east, so one day it would also return from the east. You can read about that in Ezekiel 43, but also look at Zechariah 14, for there a more specific promise is given about the return of the glory. As now the people have returned from exile and Zechariah is trying to tell them to, to rebuild the temple and be encouraged that God has brought us back, he tells the people that when the Lord comes to be their Savior, when the Lord comes to redeem His people, that He will set His feet on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. So you have this picture of Jesus making His way towards Jerusalem. Along the way, other travelers are coming to Passover and they begin to see Him and rejoice. Others are gathered as long as they are caught up in this processional advancing. You have this huge crowd that already have these massive longings and expectations for the coming of the Messiah. And they see these disciples who are confident. They are literally seeing the signs that they they had known from childhood to be looking for. This Davidic king riding on a donkey, coming down from the Mount of Olives, coming into Jerusalem to be their Savior to be their king, and they are rejoicing with great rejoicing. They are caught up in the hope and joy of their Messiah arriving before him. It reminds me of what it must have been like for the beleaguered resistance forces in France who knew for weeks and weeks and weeks the plans of the Allies to come and liberate their country, and yet the day they saw the infantry walking down the streets of Paris. The day they saw the tanks rolling in, oh, how there must have been a spontaneous eruption of joy that their friends were there pulling down the swastikas as they went. For centuries, the people had been waiting for this day. They began to rejoice and praise, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They believed indeed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. They take this psalm, Psalm 18, the psalm about the Messiah, and they they take these verses that were typically used to greet travelers coming into Jerusalem, and they altered the words of the psalm. They no longer say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They have all their hopes pinned on Jesus. This is who they've been looking for. But not everybody's happy. Not everybody is joyful. Not everybody is rejoicing, believing that Jesus is king. That's why even in the midst of all this excitement, we also gain a glimpse of the king's hostile adversaries. This is the third thing that we see in this passage. The king's hostile adversaries adversaries. Many of the religious leaders in Israel have long opposed Jesus. They cannot deny that he is from God because of the things that he has done. But like all the prophets before him, they do not like his message. They do not welcome his critique of their lives and his calls for repentance. And so at this point, they are incensed and confront Jesus about what's going on. Luke says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, some of the commentators speculate that this was not so much anti-Jesus, but fear of Rome driving this. You have to remember, again, it's not like that uh, Jesus' coming was 
what was a weird time for Israel. Remember, they are, as Luke said, they are waiting for the, the consolation of their hope. They are waiting for the Messiah to come. And in fact, there were many other kind of little M messiahs that they had put their hopes on. These were freedom fighters, resistance fighters, in some ways terrorists fighting against Rome, either under the table or directly with violent force, trying to drive them out of the land. And some people thought that this was going to be the Messiah and lead them out, and then they would be caught and executed by the Romans. And so in the midst of this kind of militarized resistance, the Roman forces would have been on heightened alert. You have two million travelers coming into one town, you know security is going to be beefed up. Now this crowd is declaring Jesus is their king, not Caesar. And the Pharisees might have had a fear that now Rome is just going to swoop in and slaughter them all. That may have been part of it, but Luke has shown us the Pharisees again and again and again, I know we cannot overgeneralize. Some Pharisees did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They became his disciples. By and large, that was not the case. They opposed Jesus vehemently. They did not believe he was the Messiah. They did not want him to be the Messiah. They go to Jesus, therefore, and tell him, shut this thing down. Look at what your disciples are doing. You cannot encourage this. Make them stop identifying you as the promised king. But what does Jesus answer them? How does Jesus respond to their request? As he continues to ride that donkey through the rejoicing crowds, Jesus calls out to them saying, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now what's he saying here? He's saying Rome doesn't matter right now. On this day, at this time, He's telling the Pharisees, you don't matter right now. Such is the glory of my coming and what I'm about to do through my death and resurrection that God must be praised. His glory must be reveled in and rejoiced in. And just as Isaiah 55 says that when the Lord comes for his people, the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And just as Psalm 96 says that when he comes, all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. So these stones themselves would cry out with praise to God if no people were found to do so. If nobody's going to praise the coming of God's Son, then creation itself will call out. Why? Because Paul makes it clear in Romans 8, because of our sin, creation itself is groaning. It is laboring under the weight of God's judgment, and it longs for the day when Jesus will recreate the worth and free it from that bondage. The, jeers, or the, the cheers and the praise of the crowd have faded. Jesus has passed the Pharisees, and now he begins to draw near to the city. But notice, Though this time seems glorious, there is a dark cloud that hangs over it. For when he sees the city that should have welcomed him just as his disciples, just as these pilgrims have welcomed him, Jesus does not rejoice but weeps over the city. Verse 41, Luke says that when Jesus saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. 
and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Remember that Jesus has grown up not very far from Jerusalem. He's been there for feasts, he's been there for ministry, and he's seen all of its spiritual failings. Jesus knows that though the people are eager for a Messiah, many of them do not actually know what the Messiah is about. They do not actually know the way of peace, the way of peace with God. And because of their spiritual blindness, Jerusalem will actually and ultimately reject Jesus as its king. In just a few days, it will not accept Christ as his Messiah. Here he is. He's arrived for his day of coronation in the city of the king, the city of David, Jerusalem itself. And he will be crowned, but not in a way that we should expect. Rather than a jeweled diadem of gold, his crown will be made of a twisted branch of thorns. Rather than being seated on a throne, he will be lifted up on a cross. Though all of this was the good plan of God to bring salvation for sinners, it was still the result of a sinful act of a rebellious people. God sends his own son to be king and God's people kill him. What God meant for good, people meant for evil and they will be judged for it. In these verses, Jesus describes the same events that the ancient historian Josephus also records about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. The false hope of a political Messiah would never come. They rejected the one true Messiah and there would be no other. Instead, Titus would lead the Roman armies to lay waste to the city, leaving the temple in ruins, leaving the city burning, people dead, the horrors of war, a foul stench in the nostrils. Hardly anyone will survive. And Josephus records that even those that do are so distraught, are so beleaguered by the experience, the sheer terror of what took place. They'll be hiding out in caves with no food, eating their own babies to survive. It's so remarkable to me that this journey towards Jerusalem that began with such joy ends with tears streaming down the face of Jesus as he knows the consequences of being rejected by his people. That evening, Jesus does not stay in Jerusalem, but goes out to Bethany for that night. The next morning, however, he returns specifically to the temple, determined even in the short time that he has to work for a temporary reform. And so here we've seen the king's humble authority and arrival. We've seen his hostile adversaries. And now finally we see the king's holy actions. We see the king's holy action. Let us remember that the temple was the center of Jewish religious life. Thousands of years before this, it was given to the people by God as a place of worship where they could offer sacrifices to find atonement for sin. Passover was a time when all of Israel gathered together as the high priest entered into the deepest part of the temple, the most holy place, and offer the sacrifice of atonement only offered once a year. Now, at this point, there had been many different versions of this basic temple structure. Remember, it started out as a tabernacle, a mobile tent. And then David put together to receive the plans for a more permanent structure, which David himself built. But then that was destroyed as, as uh, Jerusalem suffered judgment from God that we just talked about as the glory of God departed before the enemies came in. And then as Israel saw, found mercy from God and he brought some back from the exile, they rebuilt another much smaller temple. And now Herod has built this massive temple for them in Jerusalem. 
In fact, it had multiple areas or courts designated now for different kinds of people. So if you would have been in Jerusalem in that day and you would have begun approaching the the, the temple, you would have first seen the court of the Gentiles where all non-Jews could come to worship the one true God. This was marked off actually by a low wall that surrounded the entire complex. So literally, as you were walking, you would have to physically step over that wall in order to enter into the temple proper. And only those of Jewish descent were allowed to cross that wall. Or you could fully convert, be circumcised, and keep all of the food law as well. After you crossed that wall, you would enter in, into the temple gates and you would have entered into the court of the women. Though men were permitted to mingle there, women were not permitted past that court any farther into the temple complex. But Jewish men could pass from here through the large Nicanor gate into the court of Israel where the altar for burnt sacrifice and the brace laver stood. Now, of course, going to the temple meant offering sacrifices. That's why you went. But the one thing you didn't want to have to do was fool with a struggling beast or birds or whatever your offering is as you made this multiple day travel to Jerusalem. So for, for a, a, a benefit, a convenience to those that were traveling, many sold all of the things that would be sold as sacrifices there near the temple. Bulls and goats and sheep and, and pigeons, all of them they are sold where they could buy immediately before they would go to the temple to offer. Moreover, exchanges and money need to be, uh, needed to be made as well. The temple uh, received money only in one specific kind of coinage, the Tyrian coin, because it was a very high quality and purity. But more importantly for the Jews, there was no image on the coin. It did not bear someone's face, and so therefore they felt like they were not breaking any commandment from God. So money tables to offer exchanges were also needed. Now, if you've grown up in church, most of that is common knowledge. But what is not commonly understood is why Jesus was, does what he does on this Monday morning before Passover. Look at verse 45. As Jesus entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Now, growing up, I always heard that Jesus was angry at the buying and selling going on. That even there were unethical charges given for the convenience of buying sacrifices and exchanging money this close to the temple. But that's wrong for two reasons. Number one, it would have actually been an enormous help to have these people near the temple. I mean, if you know first century life and what was going on, uh, there's no disputing this. This was a help and a convenience. But more importantly... Jesus does not condemn them for robbery. Jesus condemns them for treating the temple like a robber's den. Now, here's the thing. This business was not down the road. It was not around the corner. It was so close to have been in the court of the Gentiles. So imagine you're a Gentile in the first century. You've renounced your pagan gods. You've put your faith in the God of Israel. And though you've not fully converted through circumcision, you've nevertheless come to worship Yahweh as the one true God. But you can only go so far into the temple to worship and to pray. And next to you, behind you, all around you are not the the reverent, fervent prayers of repentance and faith associated with worship and sacrifice, but the bleeding of sheep, the cooing of doves, and the clinking of coins all over the place. 
So this is not a place of robbery, but the robber's den, the place where the robbers go after they commit their crime. And Jesus gives us the justification for that interpretation by quoting from Jeremiah 7. What's going on in Jeremiah 7? What's going on there is the same critique in Jeremiah's day that Jesus is making in that day. Namely, Israelites were living however they wanted, believing whatever they wanted, breaking all kinds of commandments, but then they would run to the temple, offer their sacrifice, and think that they were safe. So just like a criminal committing vile acts and retreating to their cave of safety, Israel didn't really care about loving God or loving their neighbor or giving him the worship that he deserved. They just wanted to do what they wanted to do and escape from judgment. And the same thing is going on here, and Jesus will have none of it. Quoting from Isaiah 56, he says, uh, 66 rather, uh, no, 56. He says, this temple is supposed to be a place of prayer a place of worshipful communion with God, but they've turned it into a marketplace. They've not set up the business farther away to allow the Gentiles to worship in peace. Why? Because they themselves are not really worshipers. And therefore, they don't care about anybody else worshiping. They cannot see the need. Now, as I think through that, just in my own life, we could set up camp there for at least a few weeks unpacking its implications, and maybe we will sometime, but let's just get to the heart of the matter. In these last verses, it is clear that Jesus is zealous for the glory of His Father, and we have to ask if we're zealous as well. Do we come here, a place like this, gather together for worship and make a mockery of God with what we do and think and say here? Do we simply come out of ritual and habit? Do we come here to impress people and put on a show of righteousness? Are we most happy with convenience when we gather together? Do we think that coming to church makes up for ignoring God the rest of the week as if somehow I came to church so God will be okay with how I live? Or do we actually come to worship and serve the living God? Are we zealous for sinners to see the glory of Christ and believe? Do we weep over their unbelief? Do we have a passionate desire for gathering together to seek God's face in prayer, a passion that flows from our common salvation? The truth of the matter is, only when we see Jesus as the rightful king over our lives will such things be a reality for us. Will we be able to put aside the spiritual hypocrisy of our worship and truly worship in spirit and in truth? Therefore, today and in the coming days and weeks, let us reflect on a passage like this, on so many more passages that present Jesus as our good king, as our authoritative king, as our humble and gentle king, our righteous king, And let us ask God to open our blind eyes that we might see him and believe and live as his servants. Father, we're so thankful for your son Christ and the the reign that he has over our lives. We pray that as we come into your presence together, that we would remember worship is not not just about this, this hour and a half on Sundays once a week. Worship is about our lives. Father, from from how we wake up in the morning to how we go to bed, everything that we do and think and say, the attitudes that we carry with us, the way that we allow our minds to drift towards things that it should or shouldn't and and seek to serve those around us, to love you and our neighbor as ourself. Father, all of this is worship. So help us remember, God, that when we distinctly come and worship now together, when we come in your presence together, it should come as the capstone of a life of worship the week before. This is not just about doing our duty. This is not about fire insurance that will ensure that we escape God's judgment. 
Father, none of that will matter if our hearts are not rightly oriented towards you. Jerusalem itself experienced that. They had the temple. They did the sacrifices, but their hearts were far from you. May the same, may the same not be said of us, dear God. May we not worship as hypocrites, but as humble sinners, earnestly seeking your mercy, earnestly seeking to give you the praise and glory that you deserve for saving us, for forgiving us through your son, Jesus Christ. God, during the week, may those thoughts grip our minds and hearts. May we see this crucified Savior risen with authority to reign, and may we gladly live under that reign in his kingdom for his glory. Amen.